0: a good grip on yourself, you're going to die. Stephen Haynes is stepping out on Mary. What girl? This Crystal Allen. Crystal Allen? Yes, you know, the girl who's hooked Mr. Haynes. Now's your chance to go in there and put an end to this thing, Mary. Go in there and just say a few quiet words. Tell her you'll make Stephen's life an absolute tornado until he gives her up. Look where she was six months ago, and look where she is now. Sylvia, you're very confident, aren't you? Yes, because I know Stephen couldn't love a girl like you. If he couldn't, he's an awfully good actor. it's Ticklish business, anyway you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everybody. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez.
1: I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis.
0: And this week we are talking about another movie from 1939, celebrating its 80th anniversary. We're getting catty with the women. But before we get into that, you still have time to join our Patreon drive. We want to thank the amazing people who have joined Patreon for us since we started. I especially want to thank Kia McNabb, who is our new patron at the Ava level, which is our $5 Patreon. Hopefully you enjoy all of our special bonus content as well as our snazzy new pins, which I'm going to be sending out to patrons new and old at our Ava and Lumbar level. Still have time to get one of 30 limited edition Marilyn Monroe-centric pins designed by the fabulous Samantha Ellis. All you have to do is check out our Patreon and maybe consider signing up. Of course, Patreon gets you access to two bonus shows, including Based on a True Podcast and Double Features, three pins, and a host of content, including our TCM Film Festival audio, random interviews, and access to these episodes a whole two days early. And our movie nights, which we are planning to do again in October. Correct, ladies? I think we did. Yes. I think we said that. We did, yeah. We're, I don't think
1: we decided what, but it should be something spooky, hopefully.
0: Yes, it'll be in October, and that is for our $7 Lombard-level patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz and learn more about the work we put into this amazing show. So for the advertising portion of this podcast, let's segue into talking about The Women. This is directed by acclaimed women's director George Cukor, based on a play by the comparable Claire Booth Luce, with a screenplay by Anita Luce, so you can't really get more feminist than this movie. We're going to get the plot out of the way, too, because I seem to have a problem doing that. It tells the story of one of many issues I have with this movie. Mrs. Stephen Haynes, a.k.a. Mary, played by Norma Shearer, who finds out that her husband is a dirty cheat, sleeping around with a shop girl named Crystal Allen, played by Joe Crawford. The rest of Mary's friends, that include various married women, single ladies, countesses, all have opinions on it. You get trips to Reno, talk of divorce. Virginia Weidler is a precocious little girl, and Joan Crawford Snark. I have seen this movie several times. I think I talked about it. In case you were curious why we're not talking about My Man Godfrey, that episode, which was fantastic, was lost in the great Zencaster debacle of 2019. We hope to reschedule it, but we talked in that episode about this screwball era and feminism, and the concept of the rich. They're just like us. And I mentioned at the end of that episode that I had a very unique reaction to the women. I don't like it. and I don't think my opinion has changed on it in the four times that I've seen this movie. Sam, Drea, what was your backgrounds with the women before we recorded? And what do you think about it?
2: I've seen this a few times, probably three or four. The biggest dive I did into it was this was something I watched for a college film theory class. You guys, not to brag, but I am several years out of college at this point, And how we talk about film has changed even in that amount of time. I have a deep love for the characters and the language. I love the wardrobe Any movie, I'd be happy with a six-minute fashion montage, but especially this one. There's a lot of things I really love, but one thing we didn't get into when I studied this film, which shocks me and stands out so much now, and I'm guessing is the source of Miss Kristen Lopez's ire, is that for a movie whose entire conceit is about being a world all of women, that the only thing they talk about is men, and it's very difficult to reconcile that with how much I enjoy these people, but God, I would kill for them to have something else in their lives.
0: Andrea, you're totally right. That's exactly my issue with this movie. It's not merely the fact that they're only defined by their husbands. The opening credits of this movie introduce all the women as Mrs. Someone. Their names are little parentheses at the bottom. You mean... After they're first introduced as animals. I was going to say, and on top of that, you have these animal introductions. Joan Crawford is the cheetah and Norma Shearer is the deer. Poor Marjorie Maine is a braying horse, which I find to be really offensive. Rosalind Russell is a cat. That's the hard part that I'm reconciling with this movie is that it's written by two women who just didn't give a flip about anything but it's very, very heavily invested in showing domesticity, a very specific type of hashtag white feminism. These women are upwardly mobile, extremely so. Even Crystal Allen is seemingly living high on the hog. There's only one woman of color, played by Butterfly McQueen, who is Crystal's, I don't want to say maid, because she gets paid $2 to cook dinner. And that's such a good point, that
2: Crystal, who's the money-grabbing social climber, even she gets to be higher than this black woman who is happy for her scraps. Yeah, that was not a fun scene to watch.
0: And more than anything, there's this real ugliness about women's spheres. What QCor really does well is he shows us these women's worlds. Whether it's the spa, which is also the gym, (laughs) there's a really funny scene where it's just Rosalind Russell and Joan Fontaine swinging their legs around in really small shorts under the guise of exercise and hunting around like monkeys. Or the home, Norma Shearer's home, or even the cabin in Reno. He's showing us these worlds that are created by women, but it's filled with such ugliness. There is no true sense of friendship at the end of this movie. Maybe you get some friendliness between Mary and Miriam, played by Paulette Goddard, or maybe the Countess de la, there's this acquaintanceship, but it's never outright friendship because everybody is an inch away from stabbing each other in the back. What I kept thinking about was something like Mean Girls. Mean Girls is a movie about horrible girls being horrible to each other. But at the same time, there is a societal reason for that, the quickishness of high school. There is a catharsis at the end. Here... These are grown women acting very petty. Everybody says, Mary's so nice, but they're willing to slaughter her verbally. How horrible it is that her husband's cheating on her, but we're going to tell everybody about it. And at the end, the catharsis is that Mary gets what she wants. At the end of the day, she still doesn't have any friends that she can trust or confide in. And her world is even more insular than the women's sphere because Her world, the safe place, is her home with her husband and her daughter. And I have a real issue with that. I know it's 1939, and we talk a lot about mitigating for modern day, but I always had a problem with that.
1: It's so stunning that this movie is such a product of its time, and it definitely has those qualities that we dislike in films today. When you really think about it, the tagline of this film on the poster, it's called The Women, but right underneath that, it says it's all about men, which it can't get more obvious than that. Really worthy question to ask is, if these actresses were given the chance to make a movie that wasn't completely sexist with an all-female cast, would they have done that in this time? that's an interesting question to point out. I've seen this movie twice. This last watch was the second time that I've seen it. It's so fascinating that it's so sexist in nature and it's so catty, but this is still a very, very beloved movie, especially when it comes to the films of 1939. I see so many female writers, female film critics that praise this film Especially because of the actresses in it, but also beyond that. In the same way that Mean Girls is quoted in the classic film community, a lot of the lines in this film are quoted. It's really exceptional. It's a strange separation between what's acceptable and what's beloved.
0: That's a great point. This movie is heavily, heavily loved by fans. And I want to make sure people know that we're not saying that you should not love this movie. I do feel that there is a lot of progressiveness to it that is, oddly enough, more progressive than what we see in 2019. This is a film in which there are no male actors. There's not even a dude that walks through the scene. This is a manless movie. I don't even think we see that anymore. There's always that concept of the four quadrant film. It has to please everybody. So you don't necessarily get movies nowadays that don't have male characters in them because Automatically, Hollywood believes that men won't go see it. We've talked about the women's picture before, and this is the de facto women's picture. It's a movie in which women are always the lead. And there are moments of progress. You know, Miriam, played by Paulette Goddard, is a single woman who ends up stealing another woman's husband. But she ends up taming him and seemingly is involved in some sort of happy relationship. The whole traveling to Reno and the subplot involving Joan Fontaine's character and how they support her when it's discovered that she's pregnant. There are these moments of progress that I think people really enjoy. And Sam brought up a good point. This is a stacked cast of women. Never forget the power of classic film fandom.
2: I don't totally agree with you when it comes to the idea of them not having legitimate connections or friendships when it ends part of the pace of this which is so delicious it's so fast-moving it's so (laughs) proto Gilmore girls I love that and I love the interchange and it means that a lot of their exchanges are sparky or aside there is more poking because it's so rapid-fire but I felt genuine connection between many of these women, and I also felt that the ones who were being particularly catty, like Rosalind Russell, who's, I love so much in this, she's so outwardly horrible, and at first it's accepted, and then she turn coats. It's clear that she's not being praised. She's clearly the bad guy, or aligns herself with the bad guy, Joan Crawford, because of her heel turn, So that part of it, it's easier to watch it and get a sense of actual friendship or camaraderie or the complexity of women. I'm definitely aware of that. And I find it such an enjoyable watch because of it. And like you were just saying, the idea of in today's age that you wouldn't see a film without a man, not to hammer my own point over and over, but I love to hammer, you guys, I'm like a carpenter, the idea of a movie with all men and no women or a woman is constant and still happening. And those movies, the men are not discussing women ever. And that's my bigger problem. I could look at The Godfather and slice out Diane Keaton pretty easily. There's other components in there. There's women threaded through, but if 90% of the film is men, they are not discussing women. They're not discussing their lives with women. And it's the one thing, with this film that it would have been interesting to me, especially with the note that it ends on is given an idea that these women have rich lives. Norma Shearer's character, Mary Haynes, when we meet her, she's on a horseback and she's learned to fish you guys, which is the ultimate totem. And she takes photographs. She has all this stuff going on, but never do we see any of them producing or creating or, doing anything other. So maybe that's what you're getting at, Kristen, of feeling like the gossip carries a heavier burden because the gossip is all they're giving us.
1: I didn't really mention how I felt exactly about it before, but I do like this film. I enjoy it. The real testament of a woman's performance in a picture, though, is not how she holds herself with other women, I think it's how she displays that feminism around men. I adore the fact that this is an all female cast that's so progressive and so necessary. But on the other hand, you have to compare Norma's performance, who and I just adore Norma Shearer, for one thing, I have to throw that in there. You have to compare her performance and this to something like a free soul. Is it really that important that she's With all these women when she still portrays this shy doe of a character that runs back to her husband in the end? Or are we going to praise her performance in a movie like A Free Soul where she's opposite all these men? Sure, not women. But she definitely exudes those feministic qualities and she holds her own and she does what she wants to do. Sleeps around with who she wants to sleep around with in 1931 that's a pretty clear difference.
0: It's interesting that you brought up Norma Shearer, and this is a good segue into starting to break down characters. Norma Shearer is really presented as the perfect depiction of womanhood. She's, as you mentioned, introduced as this horseback riding fisherwoman who wears pants a lot. And she's a great mother, and she's so understanding, and she mingles with the chef so she's really down to earth. If you watched a screwball comedy and you wanted to present the wealthy people as just like us, there's still that remove of they're just zany. No, Mary Haynes is just like us in the sense there's more of this relatability that she's level-headed but still able to mingle with people beneath her. Norma Shearer always got this reputation considering she was the wife of Irving Thalberg. Joan Crawford has a line that she said in interviews that it's easy to play the saint when you're screwing the head of the studio. That's always left me not necessarily not liking Norma Shearer, but I feel like Norma Shearer really got pigeonholed in playing these godlike women. She's just so saintly in this movie. Have you seen A Free Soul? I have, yeah. Because I don't know. See, I feel
1: so strongly in the opposite direction because this is a very good example of being pigeonholed into domestic woman, but her pre-codes really show off how much of a feminine pioneer she was.
0: I can see it, and I've seen a free soul. I like a free soul, and I definitely agree that her pre-codes let every actress stretch themselves, really. But it is hard not to watch this and really see it as representative of a lot more of her films. Stuff like A Free Soul is a bit of an outlier in the grand scheme of things. She played Juliet when she was in her late 20s.
1: That's true. On the other hand, the fact that she was given an Oscar for The Divorcee, where she plays a woman who points out the double standard in Men Can Cheat But Women Can't, that type of part defines her career even in a movie like Marie Antoinette yes she plays this saintly figure and she's just this woman on a pedestal as this historic figure but she also cheats on her husband she tries to run her country behind her husband's back a little bit and she did play a lot of those parts that showed off that desire for more rights for women and more of a voice for women.
2: You know I love it when you guys start to fling other films at each other. It's a true delight for my soul, because you know so much, and I did not expect Marie Antoinette to make her way into this conversation. Um, One of my things with Mary Haynes was I was grateful for the idea there's a version of this story of the affluent woman who's being cheated on, and her husband's made a fool of her, and everyone in town knows, and she just clings to him anyway. And yes, I'm sure it falls under the noble and saintly, but there's a backbone represented there of her saying, A, she's going to leave the country for a minute and take a breath. And then when she turns around and acquiesces to the idea of a divorce, it's free of a certain kind of melodrama, which is both in nod to how the story keeps it moving. But also I liked what that said about her character, because there could have been a lot more hand wringing and, Oh no, I'm lost without him. She's stiff upper lips him, which is another way at it. And I dug that.
1: That's really true. What I love about it is yes, we do see her as the shyest character and the most traditional. But at the same time, her decision to leave Stephen after all of this was what she thought was the bravest thing to do. And then you're right, she does take a breather, she thinks about everything. And then she turns around towards the end of the film and says, okay, well, now the bravest thing for me to do is to not let him go without a fight. I see that he's unhappy. I don't want that for him because I still love him. Now the bravest thing for me to do is to go toe to toe with Crystal and get him back. And at the end of the day, she wins against someone who you wouldn't, normally see lose. Usually in these kinds of films, they get their way because she's more exotic. She has more oomph, I guess you could say. So she continues to do the thing that she thinks is the bravest, even though you don't consider her brave as a character. I want you to know I'm giving you major credit
0: for working in the oomph line from the movie. (laughs) We see what you're doing. I would have to disagree though with Sam because this is a movie is all about reminding Mary of why she's lost her husband. You have characters saying men stepping out, oh, because I forget what Crystal says about her. It's obvious that Mary has just become too familiar and she's devoted to motherhood. It's unexciting. And you're right. Crystal is presented as this exotic, saucy, obviously highly sexual woman. It's apparent. You can look at Joan Crawford in this movie and be like, yeah, that's a woman who's having sex. And then you look at Norma Shearer and you're like, eh, yeah, that's a woman that's definitely snuggling with her husband, definitely cuddles. The whole movie is Mary being told by her mom that, oh, you need to swallow your pride and do everything you can to get him back. And then you have Miriam. there's this concept of pride, which I feel like the movie doesn't define in the way I would define pride. And maybe that's the problem is that it seems to be saying to Mary that there's a problem with her and she's being too stubborn by being like, I'm going to get a divorce from this guy. Who's obviously cheating on me. The movie never really delves into what could Steven do? Cause it sounds like he's not willing to break up with this woman. (laughs) So is she just supposed to turn her head and be okay with it? What more could she have done? to get him back. And at the end of the movie, when she finally says that she's had two years to grow claws and she's willing to snap back, it's more like he was just already done with crystal anyway. I agree
2: with you. Cause I find the end tremendously unsatisfying, which is hard because right before then there's this amazing scene. The bulk of the third act takes place in the world's most gorgeous restroom or the lounge of a restroom. It has comedy. It has steaks. There's a comeuppance. There's a woman who's wailing and flops on a chaise lounge. It's just the dream. That part is really satisfying. It's revealed that these secrets start to come out, that Crystal, the man-stealer, is going to get a comeuppance. And not only that, she's stolen another woman's husband. But he has no money. So now she's leaving. She's destitute again. From the minute that Joan Crawford as Crystal leaves, and she gives this very famous parting line about how there's a word for these women that they don't use in high society outside of a kennel, which is a great line, except for the minute the lack of reward happens is her smile when she says that because she has this cat smile And you're like, oh, great, she's going to land on her feet. She's going to steal someone else's rich husband. She's not actually learned her lesson. I don't get that satisfaction. And then we see Norma Shearer running out in the most dramatic, running up the staircase and literally reaching out to the dream of her husband. It's hard because the instruction she's given by her mom when it first comes out and her mom reveals she went through the same thing with the father, and what women have to do in their situation is to swallow it, turn the cheek, and pretend they don't care. And you see Mary Haynes take a stand against that, which I appreciated. And then at the end of it, it negates the fact the claws, like Sam mentioned, that she's got out now, they're not to defend herself. It's really just a halfway of, oh, my claws are out in that I won't turn the other cheek. But still, at the end of the day, all I want is my husband. And that's not as satisfying.
0: The claws are out to rip Crystal apart, not to rip her husband apart. That's my thing, is that she seems to think that the problem is just Crystal. And I hate to be that person that's like, it takes two to tango, but that's my problem. (laughs) It also is the issue with her husband. I kept thinking movie ends... With, as you said, Norma with her arms outstretched. I feel like that relationship probably had like six or so good months. And that's about it. And then he was like finding another shop girl.
2: You mean the relationship when Mary and Stephen got back together?
0: Yes. I feel like their marriage was okay for maybe about six months, a nice honeymoon period. And then he was stepping out again.
2: Yeah, I would probably agree with that. But in looking beyond analyzing just the Haynes' messed up relationship, the other reason that this movie resonates with people, aside from the many very realistic and very believable problems with male-female relationships, there are so many exchanges in this that are the best exchanges I've ever heard. And then five minutes later is the best exchange I've ever heard. There's this whole moment when... It's just Joan Crawford on the phone to Steven. One of her beautiful co-workers keeps circling by, making asides, and she covers the phone and has to say something. It's just perfect. It's seven minutes of a perfect little snippet. That's one of the things that buoys this movie overall and makes people overlook the central problems, the red flags of the Haynes relationship, is all of those delicious moments. Don't you guys have standouts like that that
0: stick with you? What I really noticed this time around watching it is how the camera captures the look of women, especially in private moments when the artifice is dropped. So I love it when there's these gaggles of women in these movies. So there's a great moment in the beginning when they're going through the different rooms of this day spa and you get these snippets of conversation from different women, culminating with one of my favorite lines, some rando woman is getting a massage. And she says, I still would have taken a shot at him, just like I did at Judge McClure. And I was like, did she shoot a judge? That's amazing. Where's her story? I would like to know that. Or the look on Rosalind Russell's face that the camera captures right before she bites into Paulette Goddard's leg. The camera really goes real world. This is what happens when women stop with the nail polish and the lipstick and the dresses and just start getting real and some of their facial expressions in this movie are just awesome the cinematography in this movie is already lovely but I love how the camera captures these moments where the women let down their artifice
1: the thing that I love about this movie is there's either the women that you love or the women that you love to hate personally one of the characters that I love is Joan Fontaine she's the control group the more or less normal marriage and then everyone around her is just insane. Then you have the characters that you love to hate. Case in point, Sylvia Fowler, Rosalind Russell's character. She is just so ridiculous. It's a role that's so perfect for her. It almost makes you wonder if there were ever women who were really like that. And I hate to say it's like great and it's not at the same time because she's so crazy, she's so manipulative that it's probably a bad example for women back then men probably watched this film and are like oh yeah my wife's like that but at the same time it's a character that you love watching on screen whenever she's there oh she's incredible
0: sam is our joan fontaine i love her i love her so much as long as i can be the marjorie
2: main because i felt (laughs) a real kinship I don't love the idea in modern actual terms, but I love the idea of these women having to congregate in Reno to get divorces. Like they're at a summer camp ranch. It's so absurd and so wonderful. And having Marjorie Main's grumpy, but just to the point that shot you were talking about, Kristen, before she bites Paulette's leg that follows maybe one of my favorite fight scenes in all of cinema. That those two women, Rosalind Russell and Paulette Goddard, were fighting each other. They kick a horse, or she punches the horse. There's actual fisticuffs. And in that, Marjorie Maine just does this small aside of something like, well, they're pretty well matched up.
1: I love it so much. It's so absurd. The blocking of that entire scene is just genius. Right? Completely. Like, I agree. I think that's one of the best fight scenes, at least between women. It's so smart. It probably displays a really bad example of women, but it's just so fun to watch.
0: Sam brought up Joan Fontaine, and it's amazing to think that this is really the movie that kickstarted a string of hits. She was not an A list star when she made this movie, she had done Gunga the same year. She's barely in. It's not a Joan Fontaine movie. This was really the test. And then after that, it was just hit after hit after hit of leading lady roles. You watch this movie and you're like, Joan Fontaine's in this? She's not that special. She's very lovey-dovey. She's always in the background. She is the moral compass. But you never really see this as a star turn. But it really was for her. And it kickstarted her being a leading lady. So we have this movie to thank for that. One of the things
1: that I really love in actresses, one of the things that I look for and a lot of my favorite actresses have it are these thankless good girl parts. Joan Fontaine embodies that perfectly in this role. She's just so pretty to look at and she's so sweet. And she really is the moral compass of the film. She gives such good advice. Meanwhile, she doesn't have her own stuff together, She's so naive and so sweet. I love her role. It's probably my favorite, to be perfectly honest. I know it's not a big part, but I just love watching her really tender moments in Reno with Norma Shearer. You can tell that she's trying to look out for everybody else. Meanwhile, she has so much going on in her own life. I would watch this film and think to myself, okay, we need to put her as a lead in some movies.
2: She has that fascinating combination of being truly beautiful, but also really accessible and not in a total Pollyanna way. The most successful leading actresses, especially, and especially people who do a lot of romantic roles like Joan Fontaine, are people who have that sympathetic element. You want well for her. She's earned it inherently.
0: We didn't talk about Joan Crawford yet, which I feel like we have to. She's the other significant lead in this movie next to Norma Shearer. You could not have gotten two more different actresses. That's the point. You had Norma, who was the queen of the studio. And then you had Joan Crawford, who was the scrappy, clawing her way up to the top, however she had to. That was her persona. And boy, did they run with it in this movie. She plays Crystal Allen, the shop girl, who steals Stephen away from Mary. I love Joan in this movie. I know Joan is a controversial figure, and I've always appreciated her work. Some of her most delicious acting is in this movie because she's just so unrepentantly... I don't want to call her evil. I don't think any of the women necessarily in this movie are evil, but Joan understands struggle, and I think it's worth pointing out that this is still the Depression era coming out of it. She understands that a woman's value at that time is in sexuality and in beauty, and she wants that fairy tale. Every woman doesn't want to acknowledge it, but she wants to be that Cinderella story discovered behind a shop counter and elevated to Park Avenue, and she runs with it. There's this unique have and have not dichotomy that is not nearly explored, because it's hard not to feel that there's some serious classism in this movie that... If Crystal was a wealthy woman, would it be different? Would how they treat her be different? I think it would be. I think they would treat her differently if she was one of them. Instead, there's this looking down their nose at her because she works for a living. She has this job. She doesn't like kids. I love that about her. When she has that moment with Virginia Weidler, she says, I don't understand why you don't like me. And then you find out more about Joan's own relationship with her children. You're like, "Uh uh-huh. But Drea brought it up at the end when she has that smile after she gives out that great insult where she is catlight. She will be okay. And that's the most progressive moment of this movie is that she's not struck down by a rogue bit of lightning. She's not hit by a car at the end of this movie. She gets to go out into the night, probably go to a club, probably get to screw around with somebody. And that's Okay. <laughs> A
1: huge part of her whole character and a huge part of how they treat her. It's not just the difference between having money and not. It's how you act. You can still see that after Joan gets Steven and gets all this money, she still very much acts the way that she used to. That's what the other women sort of turn their nose up at. Not to mention how she got that in the first place. You really have to give props to Joan Crawford Not every woman in Hollywood would have accepted this part. What she does with it is second to none. It's really a complex role where you see those tender moments. You see what she really wants and feels, even though she's supposed to be the bad girl. That just speaks volumes. And not to mention, she does have some of the best costumes in this movie, which is saying a lot. And I mean a lot, because I love 30s fashion, and there are so many memorable costumes in this. I don't think I ever saw it in color, but I feel like it was a gold glittery number that she had, with like a backlist. Her very last dress is this dynamic, all
2: glittered, sequined thing. Really fascinating casting to have Joan do this, because you need someone who's going to make impact like she is, but also... This is a character that I very much would have believed a much younger woman in, because there's often the sense, especially with society women, with rich women, that they're going to get these younger trophy wives, whereas Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford were maybe just a year or two apart. They're similar in age, possibly even similar in beauty, though in different kinds of beauty, it's much more about life experience, sexuality, how that's coming across. And I really appreciated that Joan Crawford's character is mercenary, but seems to almost enjoy it. The scene that I mentioned earlier, just watching her in the exchange in the perfume counter area where she works, for she has this prolonged phone call, and that's hard. She's acting against... No one on the phone, and then this girl who keeps circling her, and she's changing tone. She's harsh and sharp with the girl. She's lovey with the man on the phone, and then she's pathetic and pitiful, and she's doing so much. And then when she steps around the counter and is dealing with the Rosalind Russell, Russell, then she's playing oblivious, and she's doing a lot. It Just in that sequence, it really made me rethink how she's seen as an actor, because there was so much flexibility in what she was doing.
0: The rest of the cast is also just amazing. We haven't talked about Rosalind Russell playing a character that feels feel is actually worse than Joan Crawford. Crystal lays it all on the table. You know she's a villain. It's obvious. Sylvia is that person that tells everybody to go to this woman who does everybody's nails where they'll hear about Mary's marital troubles. When she's confronted, she starts crying and whining about how she's that person that would start whining about how everybody's being mean to her after she just insulted you. And I find that to be worse. She's telling Mary about how Crystal's hanging out with her daughter. I would think that you would want me to tell you. You told me not to gather into your affairs, so I didn't tell you at the first moment. And maybe because I know people like that, I hate her character so much. But I think the movie also hates her too, because talking of costumes. She is given some of the worst costumes in this movie. The dumbest hats. And the eyeball sweater. Poor Rosalind just gets the short end of the stick because the movie seems to openly hate her character as well.
2: But the movie is right in that. That ridiculous eyeball sweater, which I would wear, is the first thing we see her in. Actually, ridiculous is a great word for it. We are meant to look at her and know that regardless of her station and the people she's surrounded with, that she's ridiculous. The fact that she is this woman who's just a deep gossip and hurtful to people around her is acknowledged and therefore she's seen in a ridiculous light, which I'm grateful for. If they hadn't given her that sheen of ridiculousness, I would have wondered if they really knew
1: how terrible she was. She's just so over the top, and she's worse than Crystal. I would not mind knowing a Crystal Allen, but if I knew a Sylvia Fowler, I would kick her out the door. You mean Prowler? Yes, Prowler. Oh my goodness. That's one of the reasons why I love Paulette Goddard's character so much, too. She gives her her comeuppance, and that's pretty much all she's there to do. She also has those really snappy one-liners, and we keep talking about the costumes, but one of the best costumes is her writing outfit. It is so, so cute. I love that Paulette Goddard exists just to bring her down. There is a
2: good range of women in this film that's all women. If it had just been a couple people, other than the case that Kristen's already made towards Mary Haynes being this archetypal, obedient wife. There's such a range of female expression. I'm sorry, of white, very wealthy female expression. The women are coming from a lot of different perspectives, which is fun.
0: Paulette Goddard is fantastic, even though, much like Joan Fontaine, she gets marginalized quite a bit. This was also a movie that introduced her to audiences in a big way, and then after this she would do to well-regarded quasi-horror comedy films with Bob Hope, The Cat and the Canary, and The Ghostbreakers, which if you have not seen The Cat and the Canary, you should. It's really, really a fun movie. She's a fantastic foil to Mary Haynes in that Mary Haynes changes herself so dramatically. She's a guy's girl. Whereas Paulette's Miriam, it's not a coincidence that both women have similar names too, Mary and Miriam. Miriam is one of those women who does not change herself for a man. She is who she is. And Howard Fowler is just into that. She almost gets to have it both ways. She gets to be the crystal and take a man from a woman who doesn't doesn't deserve him. Sylvia doesn't deserve her husband. And she succeeds. But at the same time, she still is relatable and likable and down to earth. He also gets that outfit which consists of what shorts and a shirt and cuffs She gets these weird random cups on her wrists, and you're just like, shouldn't there be a shirt attached to that? She is the contrast to Mary can inhabit all of these people in one woman. She definitely does
1: teach her a lot. You can tell. She's a character that's been there, done that. And she has her own advice to pass along to Norma Shearer's character, who's a first-timer at this. That's the reason for her and the Countess's existence. They've both been there. They serve as a point of comparison for characters like Norma's and Joan Fontaine's. The, one of the positives I can give it as being an all-female cast, they do talk about men a lot. But at the same time, it does pass the Bechtel test. And there's such a variety of women. There are no two similar personalities. Even though this is directed by a man, George Cukor, and it was financed, I'm sure, by men, they don't feel and they don't portray that all women are the same.
0: That's not to say that Hollywood didn't desperately try to do this with men. They tried to remake this several times with men. A couple months after this came out, Jack Benny did a sketch of this movie with an all-male cast playing their female characters. And I kind of want to listen to that just to hear a man say Joan Crawford's lines, including that one about taking their clothes off. They did it with the original dialogue? That's what it says. It says all male cast members in female roles. I'm assuming that they just lifted the script.
1: I'm so confused.
0: Yeah, I will be hunting this down. And then in 1960, MGM actually wanted to do a remake called Gentleman's Club, That would have involved all men, and it would have involved a man who finds out that his wife is having an affair with another man. And then he goes to Reno to file for divorce and finds himself trying to fix the situation when he discovers that the other guy is only interested in his wife for her money. Now, nothing ever came of it, but they had a cast plan for this. So it would have involved Jeffrey Hunter as the Mary. Earl Holloman would have been the Crystal... Tab Hunter would have been the Sylvia. Lou Ayers would have been the Countess de Love Robert Wagner would have been in there. James Garner would have been in there. They wanted James Stewart and Ronald Reagan in a role, as well as Troy Donahue. What? Oh my gosh. Okay,
1: the part that makes me laugh the most is Tab Hunter in Sylvia's role. The most normal dude in the most ridiculous part.
0: Robert Wagner would have been Mitchell Aaron's. He would have been our Paulette. And Joan Fontaine's character would have been the James Garner character. Oh my gosh, he looks like the most mature of them
1: all. And he would be playing the innocent one. Oh my gosh, I have no words.
0: I am very interested. This movie never got made. But they did remake this movie several times. They remade it in 56 as a musical called The Opposite Sex with June Allison and Joan Collins as our Mary and our Crystal God. You can tell what decade you're in based on how they remade The Women. And then they remade in 2008 with Meg Ryan and Eva Mendes. The Women is still a popular story to adapt.
1: I can't believe they would even try. I haven't seen The Opposite Sex. That might be okay. I know they showed at Poolside at the film festival this year.
2: If they did a remake of this, the difficulty is I would want some of that female agency subscribed to them. It's tricky because... The whole hook of having the women is that they're talking about the men, which I get. But you guys, it's the one thing I want to say over and over again. So I just had to say it again one time. Just talk about fishing more. I don't care. That was enjoyable. Your weird little stuffed fish. There's other things they can discuss.
0: I have not seen the 2008 version, which is actually written and directed by a woman. But I do know it got really bad reviews when it came out.
2: I've seen it and I can't watch it again it was so disheartening (laughs) it didn't bring any of the good stuff with it and part of it is there's something about this film set when it is that rapid fire talk which isn't really natural people don't always talk over each other at such a pace when you try and bring a naturalism into it it really exacerbates the ugliness of how they're treating each other maybe I'm giving more permission because of that language and because of The cadence of everything, it makes it feel light and bubbly, even when they're digging, if that makes sense.
0: It's definitely fascinating. I do want to touch on, really briefly, before we close it out, this movie, it's two hours and 15 minutes, and I always feel like this movie starts out really strong, and then once they get on the train to Reno, I lose interest until the confrontation in the final five minutes. Does anybody else feel that way?
1: Yeah, it is a little bit poorly paced. At the same time, there are a lot of positives to draw on. and It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of women. It's a mixed bag of emotions and relationships. And it's a mixed bag as far as the production itself goes, too.
2: Yeah, the first hour is really strong.
0: Where do we all stand on the women? Do we recommend it? I still don't love this movie. This is never going to be something that I want to watch just regularly. But it has some snappy banter. And I do think it's an interesting and... Necessary film to watch. There's a reason that it's shown in film classes. Drea mentioned watching it in a film class. I watched it in college as well as part of a film class. In a landscape where we do not get to see women in their world as a movie that is celebrated, it's always going to be where can we fit in men it's an interesting time capsule of something that we still can't see today.
1: It's really hard for me to recommend this film or not recommend this film because this is a movie that every single classic movie fan should watch at least once and then make up their own minds. If you really are appealed to these characters and these actresses all in one film. And if you like the performances, and you think that this is a good movie, go for it, watch it as many times as you want, because there are a lot of diehard fans out there. But if you don't like it as much, I can definitely see the reasons why. I love it. I'll watch it when there's a good opportunity. Like if this was ever at the TCM Film Festival again, I would probably go see it. But it's not an all-time favorite. I would personally rather see other Norma Shearer films because I'm a particular fan of hers. Same with Joan Fontaine. But it's definitely a good watch when it's on. I love this film despite
2: myself. Maybe I just like getting the platform to complain about the same thing over and over. I find it a fun view. There's other films you want to revisit all the time from the wonderful feeling they give you. if It's giddiness or heartbreak. This isn't that But there's a peppiness to this that I'll always respond to.
1: That's exactly how I feel, too. It has a rewatch factor, but it's not a favorite that I would binge all the time.
0: Listeners, send us your thoughts on Norma Shearer, Joan Fontaine, anything involving the women, including the 1939 movie itself. You can email that to us at ticklishbizgmail.com, and we'll read it on the next episode. As always, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Drea Clark and Samantha Ellis. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you online? What's going on with your writing? You can always find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com
1: You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month at classicmoviehub.com Next month I have a really nice Gloria Stewart recipe because I really wanted to get a horror lady in there for October You can follow me on Twitter at Classic And Dre Clark, what about you? I'm on Twitter
2: at TheDreaClark, and my contemporary movie podcast, Who Shot Ya?, is on the Maximum Fun Network and available wherever podcasts are found.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at Journeys underscore Film and learn all about my writing. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on classic cinema, you can head over to Journeys and I'll be posting in the next couple of weeks an interview with Preston Sturges' son, Tom Sturges was a lot of fun. He is awesome. And we love press and surges around here. So stay tuned for that. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. Of course, you can listen to Ticklish Business wherever you get podcasts, either directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you listen to us on any of those platforms, give us a rating and a review so that more people know about us. As always, you can contact the podcast directly at ticklishbiz.com. That's B-I-Z at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter at Ticklish underscore biz. And remember, we're doing our Patreon drive. You can get a limited edition Marilyn Monroe pin, as well as access to all sorts of perks. All your donations go straight back into making Ticklish Business the classic film podcast that it is. You can get access to my bonus shows. William Bibiani and I look at how Hollywood talks about itself with Based on a True podcast and Adam Coucher and I talk about the movies that Hollywood loves to remake again and again on Double Features. We have several shows up there to listen to already. Our most recent sees William Bibbiani and I look at the 2015 Marilyn Monroe biopic, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe, as well as my TCM audio, a whole bunch of stuff's on Patreon. People will be getting this episode a full two days before, so that's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Next time, we are going completely to the left with this next movie. This is actually my birthday suggestion. We're talking about the 1967 romantic comedy, Barefoot in the Park. Drea, will you be giving us some of your award-winning performances from when you appeared in Barefoot in the Park?
2: You mean when I appeared at the age of 14 as the older mother in Barefoot in the Park? Yes, I will. I will definitely find the photo of that play.
0: That'll be next time. Till then. High society. Outside of a kennel.